What you're hearing is the closest we can get to the actual sound of an earthquake. It is said to be one of the most frightening natural phenomena humans can experience. All of a sudden, the, the vibration started. It was a, a situation of quite panic. On the 25th of April and again on the 12th of May 2015, Nepal became the latest location for the destructive power of the planet. Scary, 7.8 scale, lecture scale. It's scary, many people are dying. These sounds give us an idea of the violence and intensity in this geological collision zone, where the Indian tectonic plate pushes north into the Eurasian plate. What we were hearing was, was deep, you know, it was, it was the most deep, rumbling, loud... It wasn't thunderous, it wasn't, you know, that, this, this very exciting clatter of something. It was more of a very deep rumbling. Its location on a major tectonic uplift is what makes Nepal so beautiful. But the location is also a drawback. Landlocked, everything comes in and out by road and by air. Nepal is dominated culturally and politically by its giant to the south, India, and to a lesser extent, peering over the mighty Himalayas, is China. I've come to Nepal to search through the aftermath and see the effects of a natural disaster on a country that scores lower than most on the international development charts. I'm also here to see how technology and innovation are being used to improve how the world responds to natural disasters. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kathmandu. The local time here is 5.05 in the afternoon. For your safety, please remain seated with your seatbelt I've arrived in the city 10 weeks since the first earthquake. So we're just passing near to the grounds of the Hyatt Regency Hotel in the centre of Kathmandu. And around the gardens, all along the side of the road, are still these temporary shelters made of tarpaulins. They've now developed into almost semi-permanent settlements with water tanks and little access roads into them. So the housing situation here is still not sorted out, and that's in the capital city, Kathmandu, which escaped relatively unscathed from the April 25th earthquake. Alak Nepali lives in Kathmandu. She tells me how people are coping since the earthquakes. The most affected part of Kathmandu was uh, most of the ancient heritage places that were destroyed, but now uh, like people are get, getting on to their normal lives. But still there are people who have lost, lost their family members as well as their homes. And also it seems that most of the people, they are facing difficulty in like their houses that are damaged. More than 100 Irish people were caught up in the earthquakes. Among them was Paul Devaney, who was at one of the country's most iconic locations. I was in the Paul Climbing. I was at base camp of Everest and we were 25 days into our, our mission to climb Everest. We were just finishing up some of our acclimatisation and we were resting on the 25th. It was about 11.30 in the morning and our dining tent is, is quite a large tent 
and uh, the table in the dining tent started to move slowly at first from side to side. You could just feel this, this very, very minute movement and then all of a sudden a big jerking movement. It really felt quite wild. While Paul Devaney was experiencing the quake high in the mountains, his friend Deepash Shakya, a Nepali who normally lives in Dublin, happened to be on holidays in Nepal and was in his family home in Kathmandu. By the, by the time when the earthquake hit, I, I was just, I just finished, I just finished my lunch and I was just lying in bed, just taking some rest. And there is this uh, cupboard in front of my bed and that started to shake. I was, it basically started a little tremor and by the time I jumped out of my bed, it was like a violent shaking. I was literally holding tightly on the railing, just not to be thrown out on the, on the floor. Uh, it was a terrifying experience. There was a huge uh, movement, so it wasn't even safe to go down the stair. So you never know you'll be thrown out and might, there might be injury. So after a bit, uh, when we came, finally came down and you could see all the people coming down, there was fear. People were not confident like whether to go in. And even the little shake basically terrified everybody. Paul and Deepesh both stayed on after the earthquake and continued to work on the relief effort receiving support from the Nepali community back in Ireland. When a crisis like this begins to unfold, humanitarian agencies from across the world respond, using the latest mapping and communications technology to assess the immediate need. Ross O'Sullivan is humanitarian coordinator with Concern Worldwide. He arrived within hours of the first earthquake. Communications were down or they were very, very haphazard. Um, transport was very difficult. Fuel um, um, became very, very scarce. Uh, people were frightened. People were afraid. Um, even, even, you know, even in and around Kathmandu, where large parts of the city were spared, nobody was, was sleeping in certain doors. They were all sleeping outside. Information was very, very scattered coming in from the outlying areas. Um, um, it was very, very difficult to get a handle on what was happening. The earthquake was now the next international humanitarian crisis. Good morning. At 7 o'clock on Monday the 27th of April on RT Radio. The news headlines. The death toll from Nepal's earthquake has risen to over 3,200 with thousands more still unaccounted for. Meanwhile, Paul Devaney became involved in efforts at search and rescue at Everest Base Camp. Well, the first 24 hours we were involved in a pretty hectic search and recovery operation at base camp. Within maybe half an hour of, of the earthquake dissipating, you know, we all emerged back into the middle of the camp to find it, it was gone. The whole middle of the base camp had been wiped out. And in the process, uh, 19 people had been killed at base camp. So for folks that were left, it was uh, roll up your sleeves, get your gear on, and let's start searching for people, and let's start carrying people. And base camp, like I'm, I'm sure like the centre of Kathmandu, base camp became a trauma centre. It became outdoor medical facilities, triages at every corner. That's, that's kind of how everyone that was a climber became part of the search and recovery unit in the same way that people in Kathmandu, I'm sure, you know, were co-opted into, into pulling people out of rubble, into carrying people. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty harrowing day. Um, you know, you see, you try and see as little as you can whilst doing all you can. There are about 330 humanitarian agencies implementing over 2,000 humanitarian activities since April. 
The way the humanitarian community responds to disasters is constantly being updated in line with new technology. From obvious improvements in communications, mobile and social media applications, to less obvious innovations like new developments in business management, in materials technology and construction methods. Like most areas of modern life, technology is making big changes, and this is true in humanitarian relief. One early success in the Nepal earthquake was the use of radar technology to find people trapped alive under rubble. It's due to the development by NASA of a piece of equipment called Finder. Jim Lux, task manager of the project at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, told me over Skype how the system works. In a large-scale disaster, the, the challenge is, is in, you have hundreds, if not thousands, of collapsed structures. And you need a way to stand outside the structure and tell if there's somebody alive in there that you can put a secondary search team on. And that's the need that Finder was designed to address, is that the Haiti and now the DePaul situation points up the need for this ability. So what Finder does is it's a low-power microwave signal. The radio signal goes into the rubble and reflects back from the rubble and from anything inside the rubble. And the rubble doesn't move, and so we look for motion. And the motion we're looking for is the motion from heartbeats and from breathing. And we can detect those very tiny motions. And then if we look at the characteristics of that motion and determine if it's from a human. What Finder does is it, it puts up a display of the heartbeats and breathing detected and a percentage quality score. So it says like there's a 95% or a 50% so that the operator can kind of combine that with their local knowledge to say that there's a likely chance that there's a victim in there. The idea of detecting heartbeats with microwave radar has actually been around for decades. Uh, probably as soon as they built the first radars, they realized that they could measure heartbeats. Uh, what's changed in the last few years is that technology available for us to actually build a system that can go into the field has improved. Uh, before, 10 years ago, it would have taken a whole bench full of expensive microwave equipment and some skilled people to interpret the sort of vague results. Whereas today, we've got the wireless industry gives us inexpensive components, and so we can actually build the radar in a small box. And we've got powerful computers that have batteries, just like you use in your cell phone to watch movies and do email and browse the web, can also do the processing to look at the signals and determine whether they're human or not. And uh, so that's what we, we leveraged was this technology, the, the components that are available, the computers are available, and then we combine that with NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory we do a lot of detecting really faint signals coming from a long way away and so that we combine that uh, in the software to make a device that's you know fits in an overhead bin and that a first responder can just take out, put on the ground and operate. Four lives were saved when the finder was deployed in Nepal, proving that cutting-edge space technology can be of benefit in a disaster situation. The immediate trauma of the rescue of people buried alive after the earthquakes has left a lingering fear among the Nepalese people. We heard a lot about people being in fear of another earthquake, and I know there are little tremors every day, but are, is that fear gone now that time has passed? 
Uh, actually, while talking to most of the people, it seems that now they have uh, moved on to the normal life. It's like they are used to the tremors as well. Also, last night we felt one small tremor, but like elder ones, they are really scared that another tremor is going to hit the bigger one. So uh, that age group are still conscious that another big earthquake is going to come. Back in April, as the hours turned into days, the scale of the devastation in the countryside became clearer. We're talking about 95 to 100% destruction of houses and property in the rural areas. So whole communities were wiped out in terms of their physical infrastructure and many, many people lost family members or had family members injured. Ross O'Sullivan of Concern. They're traumatised, they're in fear and they're cold and they're wet and they're hungry. We determined that people, they were living outdoors in the foothills of the Himalayas. Although the sun was shining by day, it would drop to below freezing at night. The monsoon season was about to begin. So people were trying to keep warm and protected from the elements in very, very poor um, um, circumstances. So we needed to, to look at a package. We looked at a, developing a kit very, very quickly that would have a shelter component that would have some basic what we call non-food item components. Food was not a major issue initially. People needed to be able to kind of, as I say, um, take shelter from the elements and stay warm at night. The experts say it was fortunate the epicentre of both earthquakes was over 100 kilometres from Kathmandu. So the capital was spared catastrophic damage. But that also meant the areas worst affected were remote, hard to access and home to some of the poorest people in an already very poor country. With most of the media and the first responders heading home, the complicated process of delivering aid to this mountainous country was being organised. Eddie Cranmer, a logistics expert with Concern, fills me in on the details of how humanitarian aid gets to where it's needed in a situation like this. In the initial phase is very similar to a lot of our emergency response where the initial needs was shelter kits. We hold emergency stock in, um, in Dubai in what's called the UNHRD, Humanitarian Response Depot. The idea behind that is obviously to make things more timely in terms of response. Things would usually be dispatched within a couple of days, so that would be through charter flights. So with previous response like the the earthquake in Haiti, Philippines, typhoon, even the cyclone in Myanmar, that worked very well. The difficulty here was the airport in Kathmandu was actually a lot smaller. So due to a lot of congestion in the original kind of first days, it wasn't possible. And there was also a lot of regulations that we had to adhere to. So it was landing permits that you had to obtain. Because we didn't want to delay any further, we basically kind of re-strategized our approach and we decided to truck material in from Delhi and Mumbai. We then sent maybe 20 to 30 truckloads of these shelter kits. The difficulty from a logistics point of view that you face then is that the trucks coming in are Indian trucks. And again, due to tight regulations and custom clearance procedures at the border, they actually have to be, the goods have to be transferred then onto Nepalese trucks. So from our point of view, we we had a staff member based down there 
And again, we would do that in a lot of emergency responses just to ensure that the goods do get across and facilitate the proper clearance. So once that was done, we then transferred the goods to the Nepalese trucks. So in total, together with our partners, we distributed 14,000 of these shelter kits. Soon after the initial earthquake, Médecins Sans Frontier established a rehabilitation clinic at the Kathmandu Orthopaedic Hospital. Gosia Novatska, a physiotherapist from Poland, is showing me around. Everything is really related to the trauma, so it's fracture, 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 fracture. Vertebra fracture with the neurological complication or without neurological complication. A lot of lower limb fracture, some upper limb fracture, a lot of pelvic fracture. And these would have been people in situations where the hoses literally came down on them? Some of them would the people explain, some of them they jump from the first or second floor, which can provoke a lot of pelvic fracture, vertebra fracture. Some of them they were really rubber in the in the houses. So the situation one by one is a bit different. Huh? But yes, all of them related to the earthquake, jump, try to escape or rubber in the in the buildings. Huh? The patients are accommodated in tents, which fill up the hospital grounds. I'm taken to meet Binu Prasa. She's just one of over 18,000 people injured. She's upset, but wants to tell her story. She's saying that uh, she was walking with her two daughters, and when the wall behind them collapsed, and she lost both of her daughters. Both of her daughters were buried under the wall and she was just hit by that uh, bricks. And later when she asked, she was, she was shouting for help and one of the uh, strangers came and uh, like cleared that wall. Binu lost both of her daughters in the same wall collapse that caused her injuries. Nepal is full of stories of these survivors who have lost home and family. Her home was also destroyed because of the earthquake and she has one son as well. He's staying in his friend's house and she's saying that after she gets treatment from here, after the rehabilitation is complete, she will ask help from some of her friends and will go and stay in their place. And also her husband, uh, he's not able to work because he has also lost his children. So uh, now, now she's planning that she'll find some work. They'll find some work and will again like start living their normal life. The problem with many of the recovering patients is that they can't simply take a wheelchair or crutches and go home. Nepal, like much of the developing world, is far from wheelchair or even crutch friendly. People recovering very well and they are people, most of the patients, they are people from the countryside. So strong people and tough people. Yeah? Uh, but here at the same time, the condition after the discharge is not the same condition that we have, for example, in Europe. Huh? In Europe, okay, you can be discharged from the hospital, you can be followed in outpatient department, you have a transportation, you have the ambulance, you have the good roads. Huh? Here, if the people, they are discharged, they are coming back 
now to nowhere because most of them they lost their houses. So they are living on the camps under the plastic sheeting in their really temporary shelter. So we try to provide them more follow-up, let's say, than in usual condition, really to give them as much autonomy as we can. So, for example, in I would say in usual situation, you can discharge somebody who has both leg fracture and he's still moving on the winter and he will just start walking in two weeks and you can discharge him. He will keep the patient just really to start walking with them to provide them all the functional gait training, so how to walk on the steps, how to walk uh, over the obstacles. Oh, because the, the villages wouldn't be wheelchair friendly, so you can't they, let somebody they, go on a wheelchair. They are okay. absolutely not wheelchair friendly. And I think even here, even in Kathmandu, you, if you see the building, there are a lot of steps, eh? and if you see the roads, and there is nothing wheelchair friendly, and even crutches friendly, not so many. Right. So they have to be really, really independent. The MSF clinic benefited from an advancement in materials technology. A new high insulation material was used in one of the tents, allowing for much more efficient cooling in the hot conditions. We here, we, we made a tri try for one, call it design shelter, which is just improved shelter, improved tents. The, the improvement is mostly for the protection of the heat, because you imagine that most of the field hospital, the biggest problem is the temperature and the, and the, and the rain. For the rain, difficult to manage. For the temperature, sometimes you can manage. So, for example, here we set up one of the tents, it's a better protection, better isolation. And yes, it was a good test and absolutely in distance it was not so, so, so hot as in the other tents. At the same time, when the water comes, we have the same problem in all of the tents. And of course, <laughs> the, the rain doesn't come in the top of the tent, it comes in underneath. Exactly, exactly. Much of the devastation caused by the earthquakes in April and May happened in the rural mountainous valleys of Nepal. That's where I'm headed to see the damage up close. One of the big problems with the humanitarian response is access. The country is, after all, home to the world's greatest mountain range, and many of the world's highest peaks are found in the majestic Himalayas. Much of Nepal's population are living above 2,000 metres in areas with little or no road access, and long distances are covered on foot. So we're trying to pass a truck at the moment on a narrow mountain road of maybe 12 or 14 feet across and the truck is ahead of us. There's a bus coming towards us. The drop off to one side is literally hundreds of metres. Somehow both of them can get past. The bus is coming past us now. And then we're going to attempt to pass the truck out as I look down into the valley, I can see right along the valley these little piles of rubble where houses used to stand in places people are clearing them, sorting through the rubble, taking out the corrugated iron, the reinforcing bars, bits of timber, sorting them all to one side, hoping to rebuild. We're just passing a truck now. <laughs> and this process will be repeated every 10 or 15 minutes or so as we head up the mountain on these narrow roads. In places, landslides have taken the road out, 
and between the Nepalese army and locals, they've been rebuilding the roads to make them accessible. We're still about two or three hours from where we're going, and I'm told that the, the road is going to get worse, the landslides are more frequent, and the destruction is more complete as we go up into the Himalayas. I've come to a small town on the Tamakoshi River to meet Alistair Taylor from Concern. Well, it's uh, quite a devastating view with um, houses knocked down, half knocked down. Um, we can see in the background where there was a huge landslide came down the hill as a result of the earthquake and it basically smashed through a village killing a number of people. And um, as well as uh, the landslide knocking the houses down, the earthquake in itself knocked the houses down. The houses are traditional, either built from wood, which tended to survive a little bit better, or um, stones but with no cement, just uh, the local stones uh, bound together with soil. The shaking of the ground made them fall and you just see the devastation in front of us. You know, you can see, a, it's almost like a movie scene. You see the front of the house with the back all missing, um, like some spaghetti western sort of stage set, but it's just terrible. And of course the need, the, the greatest need for people in a situation like this in terms of, of the response of NGOs is for shelter. Yeah, well, immediate emergency response, people gave um, plastic sheets, tarpaulins, um, bowls, um, water carrying equipment, um, things like that just for survival. And then people generally from areas like this, they shifted to safer locations because they weren't sure if other, another earthquake was going to come. And in, in this particular case, it did, it did come. Uh, as big as the first one, a second earthquake came. And uh, so it's good that people had already moved out from these places. Um, now they want to move back home, but they obviously can't move back to this area. It's just destroyed. So you'll see they're building other smaller shacks elsewhere. So the first response was to build tarpaulin houses, tents to, to live in those. Um, but now the second stage, um, NGOs and others are trying to bring in corrugated iron sheets where people can build slightly more permanent houses. The earthquakes in Nepal destroyed almost half a million homes. That's the equivalent of about 160,000 houses in Ireland, destroyed. The population is almost 26 million and it lost one in every 10 dwellings in the country. That's the scale of the shelter crisis. One group working with an innovative design for shelter is Habitat for Humanity. Response specialist Joshua Weber showed me what they had. Basically, so right now we've distributed about 20,000 sheets of corrugated roofing, corrugated roofing iron, um, and we've got about 30,000 more to go. So this is one of the early prototypes of uh, shelter. Uh, and the idea is that we make a distribution of shelter material that can be used in itself as a standalone shelter uh, if someone has, doesn't have access to other materials. Um, also, we've, we've designed the program so that if someone wants to utilize this material to upgrade or to improve whatever shelter they're in, they can use it as well. So um, the kit on its own works as a shelter. Um, some of the interesting things is that, number one is that the roofing sheet, we don't put any holes in it. So it can be reused. So we've come up with a method where they just overlap. We cut small uh, little strips here and roll it up. Very secure. This one's been up through, you know, for about two months now. 
uh, and then we've got some GI wire here used to secure the roofing sheets. So that would be instead of the normal way of constructing a timber frame and then tacking exactly. the, the sheeting onto the frame? Yeah, to the roofing system. So the idea is that all of this material can be reused, right? So this is obviously just a temporary use. Um, and so, and uh, so we anchor it. Uh, it's very strong. Um, but yeah, even the rebar can be used uh, in foundations moving forward. This can be taken off and put on a more permanent structure. This design actually is a variation of a design that was first used by Habitat for Humanity in 2005 uh, in response to the Pakistan earthquake. So the area that it was being used in, so mountainous region, um, very difficult logistically. Um, this is something they come up with. We basically uh, did uh, some very slight redesign on this. Um, but one of the amazing things about this shelter uh, is that our price point, including logistics, distribution costs, everything uh, per unit comes in below $200 US. Wow. Yeah, so you get a lot of, you basically have, um, and again, it's not necessarily uh, what this is, but what the families do with this and how they utilize the materials. Um, but really, I mean, you're, you're creating um, a temporary solution for less than $200. There is a challenge facing a lot of families in that most of the housing stock in the rural areas um, was built uh, many, many, many years ago. So a lot of the families aren't sure what type of technology they want to use to rebuild. They don't have the, fa the financial resources to rebuild. So really what this is is just to create a shelter, situ a shelter solution for them to get them through to a point where they can begin their self-recovery. Although the shelters themselves are low-tech, the methods used for assessing the needs after the earthquake are not. One of the things that um, has really been effective um, in this disaster is um, the mapping of need uh, at, a, at a village level. Uh, and then also something that we've um, really uh, kind of made a lot of progress in this disaster is using uh, handheld uh, smartphone technology and actually designing our own applications uh, to perform monitoring and evaluation, mapping of distributions, uh, you know, taking photos of the families as they install the shelters for transparency for donors, uh, and really, um, really getting to that next level of capturing real-time data processing it and then improving our programs as we move forward. So that's something that's really um, been, made a huge impact in our program uh, during the past two months. Concerns Eddie Cranmer says social media was particularly useful in the early days of the disaster. A lot of the phone networks here were down initially um, and it was quite strange where to contact people here on the ground, you could contact them still through Facebook but yet not through the mobile network. We do use um, things such as digital data gathering devices. We've started using this uh, in recent years in a lot of programs, mainly for doing surveys with, say, local farmers, for example. So when you're trying to gather this data and do your assessments for the program to actually see what the outputs are going to be, um, yeah, digital devices now um, improved connection and connectivity in a lot of countries where we work. It does help and it does improve things. Um, but I suppose you need to also realise then the limitations of that and the possibility of those connections going down. So we always have to have something to fall back on. I've travelled on to the town of Charicot at about 5,000 feet above sea level. In the May 12th earthquake, many buildings came down. Just as we arrive, we're told another building has collapsed. Right, so I'm standing next to the building where less than an hour ago one of the workers who was helping to demolish the building was killed when the building collapsed. It's still 
very common thing around here. They say that the building was standing, got tilted with the four-story building, but it was just now that whole building collapsed like this. You can see the store by store, the, the, everything is piled up. And they even say that bodies might be stuck inside, so the bulldozer is coming to clean this mess to, to see if any body is inside or not. So till now, they confirm that one people is dead, one is injured, and they don't know about how many people are inside. Oh, he's saying that this is a three-storied building and the walkers were uh, stocking the lowest floor, ground floor, with the, with the hammers on the pillar. So he suspects that that might be the reason why the entire building collapsed all of a sudden. So it was not an engineering, engineeringly logical way to demolish a building because hitting the ground floor will definitely collapse the entire building. Two months after the original earthquake, and there are still fatalities happening during the recovery process. And the most recent one has just been brought in here to a tented hospital, and it's pretty makeshift, right in the centre of Charicot, this hill town that was more severely affected by the May 12th second earthquake, where even very big, structurally sound-looking concrete buildings collapsed or were damaged so badly that they will have to be demolished. And the process of de demolition today uh, resulted in one serious injury and one fatality. The land suitable for building on is very limited, so it's not as if people could build elsewhere in this place. They have to clear this first. So actually that's... Um, um, Another thing that uh, NGOs like Concern are, are doing, uh, now we're looking the idea of using cash, cash for work, so communities, it's good that they do something for the money, and so we'll, we'll sort of train them, in, or get experts to train them in the safe demolition of these houses, because first of all they need to clear them, recycle what materials they can, and then once the site is clear then they can start to think of rebuilding, but then the whole motto for all organisations, including Concern, is to build back better. So putting in features um, which, which will help or pro uh, limit the possibility of such disaster happening again. The earthquake will come, but uh, now with more modern designs, but not necessarily so expensive incorporating different things, um, it can make the building more resilient to, to future disasters. Here are some more of the numbers for the Nepal earthquakes. Along with over 8,000 killed and 18,000 injured, 2.8 million people have been displaced, and the total number of people affected is put at 5.5 million. It was reported that some of the survivors were targeted by human traffickers involved in supply of girls and women to work in the Middle East or the brothels of South Asia. The most affected were those living in the poorest and most remote communities. My final destination in Nepal is Jaffe, a village cut off by road since the earthquakes. Alistair Taylor is an agriculture and livelihoods expert. He is leading the way up a very steep, narrow path. Um, we're climbing up to visit uh, um, some communities which we're working with. 
we're working with communities spread throughout the mountain. We can't reach the really remote ones, um, but this is a half an hour up the hill. But we can't go by the normal road because it's washed away. Half an hour's walk, but the trouble is it's half an hour straight up, not half an hour long. <laughs> so that's why I'm out of breath, sorry. After tourism, agriculture is the main business in Nepal. Almost three quarters of the population are directly dependent on farming. Now we're looking down, so the crop immediately in front of us is maize. It doesn't need, it needs to be kept moist, obviously, but it doesn't need to be flooded. Further down, we see actually water standing in the terraces, and that's where they've planted rice. Actually, now is the rice planting season, as the monsoon has started. And of course, they're under extra pressure now, trying to restore their, their homes that have been destroyed. Exactly, so they're trying to balance uh, restoring their... Uh, building their, their, their shelters, their homes, um, together with doing the emergency repairs on different crops and, and, and terraces and the irrigation channels. And then, um, yeah, also trying to keep the normal cycle going. Say, actually, when the earthquake began, was right at the end of the dry season, more or less the time when they were expecting the rains to begin. Um, the rains came a little bit late, which was actually quite good because it was time for people to erect, erect temporary shelters. Um, but now they need to catch up with the cropping season. So they're in the temporary shelters. They've more or less left the buildings as they are for the moment and now concentrating on um, the agricultural side. On our way to the village, I meet Rajan Ka. He's in his early 20s, a member of the Dalit community, one of the lower castes of Nepali society. They usually work as carpenters and labourers. He wasn't in Nepal when the first earthquake struck. He was uh, in Qatar to earn some money, but that earthquake happened and he has to come back. Two of his brother's wives died and his own wife was badly injured in the earthquake. Like many Nepalis working overseas, Rajan was caught between coming back to help out and losing vital income for his family. He came back. When they arrived at Qatar, the employer who hired them said that if you want to go back, I can send you tomorrow, but it will be an end of contract. You won't be running back. Rajan is one of almost one million Nepalis who work in the Middle East. As building work increases ahead of the 2022 World Cup, hard-working Nepalis like Rajan are in demand. Uh, he planned to go back to Qatar, but he used the money from his salary. So he had no savings coming back to his village, so it's quite difficult to go back. Apart from the appalling conditions, Rajan would earn less than 250 euros per month. Although it sounds like very little, it's the equivalent of nearly a year's wage in Nepal and he would have been supporting his extended family with his income. In the short term, people may come and, and give money to help people in different ways or give them items. But in the longer term, um, they need to provide for themselves. So we were just talking with some farmers. They would normally bring stuff to this market to sell. The market's gone, so they, they can't do that. But also the road is destroyed further along. So they say they can't bring the stuff very easily to market. So really, the longer term income will come back, as it's always been, will be on their agricultural livelihoods. 
so to re-establish local markets and they don't have any other means of taking stuff long distances. They've already walked um, three hours so if they were carrying potatoes or rice or maize or another produce that they wanted to sell um, you know three or four hours carrying something heavy worthwhile to market is a, over that would be a problem. Um, so that's why when such local markets disappear that also um, is, a, is a loss to their livelihoods. So we're trying to look a bit longer term at the same time as helping to cover immediate needs from the earthquake, maybe loss of animals, loss of crops, loss of seeds, loss of produce in store, um, and alongside the shelter work, um, also looking to the longer term of building up livelihoods for the future so they can become self-reliant again. Paul Devaney, who was caught up in the earthquake on Everest, believes future visitors to Nepal will bring something extra to help the recovery. There was many reasons to go to Nepal before this, and, and there's an extra reason, I think, to go to Nepal now. Um, most people that go there build up an affinity with, with locals that they meet. If, if you're going there on a trekking visit, you'll remember people, and you'll have connections with them for a very long time. You'll have connections with their family and their children and their education, and you may even be involved in some of that. And, and that's a kind of a connection that you don't get when you go on holiday to other places. I think that's probably strengthened and deepened now. So I think, you know, there are people now who are going to trek, go on trekking trips and they're actually going to go there, trek, and then help to rebuild the village. The Everest expeditions, for example, morphing into something like that, where part of your expedition will be obviously to climb the mountain and part of your expedition will be to contribute to the areas that need it most. See the golden door and golden window? Before I leave Nepal, I take a tour of the historic Patan Dorbar in Kathmandu. And they will rebuild? Rebuild the collection here, then they make rebuild now. It's an area of palaces and temples and a big tourist attraction. That figure also is cracked, you see? Inside that statues, we call Hari Sankara, the half Shiva and half Vishnu, half protection and half destruction god. And it's... Yeah, it's cracked. You see the face is gone. And these things... The evidence of loss and destruction is everywhere in yeah. Nepal. Loss of families, homes and livelihoods. While the people remain strong, and even with the help of innovation and technology, Nepal has a long journey ahead. And are you hopeful that many tourists will come to Nepal now? They won't be afraid after I, the earthquake? I, I hope they are coming. <laughs> Take tight, not a